Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 195. We'll continue in the Proverbs with a brief summary of chapters 16 through 19 and follow with some thoughts about learning and not learning lessons from experience. Incidentally, we're halfway through Proverbs, and I've been calling its author Shlomo because that's what chapter 1 verse 1 tells us. But I didn't bring up the issue of attribution back in episode 191 when we started. There was a late biblical practice of ascribing texts to famous figures from the nation's past, and since Shlomo was renowned for his wisdom, as recounted in 1 Kings, it seemed like a good fit. However, biblical scholars tend to think the collections of sayings and longer poems were written, in all probability, centuries after Shlomo, with the earliest layer going back, perhaps, to the 8th century BCE, though some individual proverbs may well have been older. And we talked about this also, about, you know, the the Egyptian wisdom books. Anyway, so for the remaining episodes, I'll refer to the author or authors of proverbs as Mishle, the Hebrew name of the book. That way, no one's left out. Okay. The Tweet Wisdom Storm continues with chapter 16, clustering some knowledge into four distinct categories. The first, about the relationship between people and God, focuses on the huge gap between what a person knows about themselves and what God knows about us. Quote, all a man's ways are pure in his eyes, but Adonai takes the Spirit's measure. That's not going to be good. Anyway, but there isn't a gap between what God wants or more like doesn't want of us, quote, Adonai's loathing is every haughty man. Be sure of it. He will not go scot-free. And since we're talking of haughty men, Mishle has some thoughts about the haughtiest of men, the king. But spoilers, it's not criticism. Quote, there is magic on the lips of a king. His mouth won't betray in judgment. I suppose Mishle could be referring to mortal earthbound monarchs, but as he waxes on, it sounds like he's speaking more about God than man, because no man with that much power behaves in the virtuous manner he describes. Mishle then moves on to discuss the value of wisdom and personal comportment. Quote, pride before a breakdown and before stumbling haughtiness. And, quote, pleasant sayings are honeycombs, sweet to the palate and healing to the bones there are always those that don't pay attention. Quote, a worthless man is a furnace of evil, and on his lips like burning fire. A perverse man provokes a quarrel, and a sullen man drives off a friend. A lawless man gulls his companion and leads him on a way that is not good. But in the end, Mishle returns to the virtuous. Quote, better patience than a warrior, and who governs his spirit than a conqueror of towns. Chapter 17 leads off with a familiar formula of better X than Y with a hot one, quote, better a dry crust with tranquility than a house filled with feasting and quarrel. And the Proverbs keep on coming, quote, who mocks the poor insults his maker, who rejoices in ruin will not go scot-free. Or a rebuke comes down on a discerning man more than a hundred blows on a fool. Or better meet a bear bereft of its cubs than adult in his folly. Or, who gives back evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. Or, a joyful heart can effect a cure, but a lame spirit dries up the bones. And finally, who is sparing in speech knows knowledge, and cool-headed is the man of discerning. 
A silent dolt, too, may be reckoned wise, who seals his lips may be deemed discerning. Chapter 18 follows with another torrent of maxims, this time about the power of will, speech, and its consequences, feeling secure in one's life, honor, and humility, how to maintain a healthy disposition, and how to handle oneself in conflict. There's even a maxim or two about couplehood and being a good friend. Here's some choice ones. Quote, deep waters, the words a man utters, a flowing brook, the wellspring of wisdom. And the lips of the fool lead to quarrels and his mouth calls out for blows. And a man's spirit sustains him in his illness, but a lame spirit who can bear. And who finds a wife finds a good thing and wins favor from Adonai. Chapter 19 continues with some more spicy takes, especially on class consciousness. Here's some hot ones, quote, Better a poor man walking in his innocence than a man twisted in speech who is a fool. And wealth will give one many friends, but the poor is parted from his friend. And many court the favor of a nobleman, and all are friends to a man with gifts. All a poor man's brothers despise him, even more his friends draw back from him, and a man's insight gives him patience and his glory to overlook a fault. And disaster to his father, a foolish son, and a maddening drip, a nagging wife. And, most thoughtfully, many are the plans in the heart of a man, but it is Adonai's counsel that is fulfilled. There's going to seem to be a lot of loose threads in this episode. I'll probably tie them together somewhat before the episode concludes, I hope. Here we go. Thread one. I did an engram search for the term toxic masculinity, and based on Google's voluminous scanning of printed material in English, the term first appeared in a 1989 book by Eli Sagan called Freud, Women, and Morality. It soon found its way into the discourse of the mythopoetic men's movement that sought to reclaim masculinity from industrialization, feminism, and the separation of fathers from their families because of working outside the home. The meaning of the term in the present context should be familiar to us, but in case it's not, we can look to the American Psychiatric Association's Guidelines for Psychological Practice with Boys and Men, which was released in 2019, to provide some guidance. They regard what folks call toxic or what they call traditional masculinity, that is, stoicism, competitiveness, dominance, and aggression, as, on the whole, harmful. This, as you can imagine, upset a lot of men who felt that their traditional masculinity was under attack. Which it was, because it's toxic and terrible and harmful. But whatever, I'm not interested in processing the feelings of uh, hurt men, because it'll just manifest as anger and violence anyway. This is a disgrace. I accomplished something. I wrote a novel, and now my integrity is being attacked. I've been called racist, sexist. I don't have a racist or sexist bone in my body. I am Brent Norwalk and I'm a good person. I'm in the good place, you ever heard of it? And I'm here because I deserve to be here. I'm here because I earned it by being the best. Many folks are interested in how notions of masculinity are changing in the present moment and researchers have looked into how they were set up in the first place. Thread two. For me, I don't know if diaspora Jewish culture ever created for itself an image of masculinity outside of Jewish traditional norms, that is, Jewish law categorized 
men and women differently, and therefore so did the culture, and then created these ideal types which, for obvious reasons, regarded the lawmaking through text-interpreting male as the ideal type. In other words, Our beloved rabbi. Rabbi, may I ask you a question? Certainly, Labish. Is there a proper blessing for the Tsar? A blessing for the Tsar? Of course. May God bless and keep the Tsar far away from us. <laughs> Thread two and a half. There are many hagiographies of rabbis out there, especially a fairly recent batch in the long view of Jewish history that lionize the various Hasidic rebbes who held court across the shtetls of Eastern Europe. But the real archetypal Ur-Rabbi, the one who is the mold, is arguably Rabbi Akiva ben Yosef, the second century Mishnaic luminary and leading figure in the violent uprising against Rome under Bar Kokhba. We know nothing of his parents, although there was some indication that they were converts, which in the grand scheme of things I guess is a good thing, but in the traditional worldview is, shall we say, socially suspect. Apparently, Akiva was an illiterate shepherd for much of his adult life, and at the age of 40, he caught the eye of Rachel, the daughter of his employer, and Jerusalem one percenter Kalba Savua. She admired his modesty and integrity, and according to legend, offered to marry him if he would agree to begin studying Torah. This did not sit well with Kalba Savua, whose name literally translates as sated dog. He disinherited his daughter and his new son-in-law, and reduced to poverty, Rachel nonetheless was committed to her husband's education. Akiva spent the next 12 years away from home pursuing his studies. Now, as the story goes, he returns to his home followed by an entourage of about 12,000 students. But before crossing the threshold to reunite with his wife, he overhears her speaking to a neighbor. If I had my wish, she says, he would stay another 12 years at the academy. At which point Akiva turns around and returns to the academy. Now, what she said could have been understood, shall we say, in a variety of ways, but let's say she was being positive and supportive. In that moment, you really captured the ideals of masculinity and femininity. A woman who is supportive to the point of subservience to her husband, and when relevant or where relevant, and encouraged, of course, for the children. The man, ideally, should be studying Torah. As I said, Akiva was the ultimate expression of that idea. He was regarded as one of the greatest scholars of his era. He was instrumental in drawing up what would become the canon of the Tanakh. He was a systematizer of Jewish law and a pioneer of a style of hermeneutics and analysis of source texts that set the tone for the discourse which dominated the Talmud. The Talmud recounts in Tractate Menachot, folio page 29b, that when Moshe went up to heaven to get the Torah, he found God sitting and tying crowns on the letters of the Torah. Moshe says to God, quote, Master of the universe, who is preventing you from giving the Torah without these additions? God says to him, There is a man who is destined to be born after several generations, and Akiva ben Yosef is his name. He is destined to derive from each and every thorn of these crowns mounds upon mounds of Jewish law, halachot. It is for his sake that the crowns must be added to the letters of the Torah. Moshe said before God, Master of the universe, show him to me. 
God said to him, return behind you. And so Moshe went to sit at the end of the eighth row in Rabbi Akiva's study hall and did not understand what they were saying. Moshe's strength waned. He almost fainted. When Rabbi Akiva arrived at the discussion of one matter, his students said to him, My teacher, from where do you derive this? Rabbi Akiva said to them, It is a halacha transmitted to Moshe from Sinai. And when Moshe heard this, his mind was put at ease, as this too was part of the Torah that he was to receive. This ideal type, in many respects, is still in place in the ultra-Orthodox world. Thread 3 So, all the while Akiva is studying and innovating, he is also one of the most vocal supporters of violent insurrection against the Romans. And it's not clear how intensive his involvement was in the uprising or the preparations thereof, but Akiva went as far as proclaiming its leader, Bar Kokhba, as the Mashiach. The Messiah. Now you listen here. He's not the Messiah. He's a very naughty boy. The Bar Kokhba revolt erupted in 132 CE because of broad dissatisfaction with the Roman rule that lingered since the first great revolt of 67. But the spark that really set things off was the construction of Aelia Capitolina, a Roman city on the ruins of the destroyed city of Jerusalem, but particularly it was the decision to locate a temple to Jupiter on the site of the ruined temple on Mount Moriah. Jewish forces scored quick victories, and for two years, Bar Kokhba served as a nasi, or prince, of the Jews in an independent Jewish kingdom. Now, as I said, it's not exactly clear how much Akiva's involvement was in the revolt or besides declaring its leader as the Mashiach, I mean, even that's a pretty significant endorsement. Some scholars have argued that those thousands of students in Akiva's entourage went off to fight the Romans, but it's not clear if that is in fact what happened. And Akiva's arrest after the revolt was finally suppressed by six full Roman legions was not because of politics, but because Akiva violated the Hadrianic edict against teaching Torah. He was eventually executed, and even to this day, we recount his martyrdom in the Ela Ezkereh prayer during the Musaf service on Yom Kippur. Akiva sadly was not the only casualty or martyr that day. Nine other scholars were killed in very horrific ways. But the fact that we keep circling back to their experience without any mention of how it came about they were executed is very telling. Let the name... He's taken from every book and tablet. Stricken from all pylons and obelisks. Stricken from every monument of Egypt. Indeed, in the very moment that Rabbi Akiva declares that Bar Kokhba was the Messiah, the Jerusalem Talmud and Tractate Tanit recounts the following. Quote, Rabbi Akiva would teach a star, Kochav, has come forth out of Jacob, as Bar Kozba has come forth out of Jacob. When Akiva would see Bar Kochba, he would say, quote, This is the King Messiah. Rabbi Yochanan ben Torta would tell him, Akiva, grass shall grow from your cheeks, and yet the son of David shall not appear. Even in that moment, some rabbis were expressing doubt 
about the declaration and what would inevitably follow. Of course, there is hindsight speaking here as well, but the lesson they learned from the Bar Kokhba debacle was seared into the consciousness of the rabbis who survived that catastrophe, and not only because it took destruction to a whole new level. Besides the wholesale ruin of the Judean countryside and the subsequent attempts to essentially ban Judaism, hundreds of thousands had been killed and tens of thousands were sold into slavery in Hebron's Mamre slave market. You could buy a Jew there for less than the price of a horse. The Romans would further erase the Jewish presence from the province by renaming Judea Syria-Palestina. Judea would never be a center for Jewish religious, cultural, or political life again until the 20th century. So what? Well, over the next century and a quarter, the surviving sages and their disciples distilled the lessons of that experience into what they refer to as the three oaths. They are based on an interpretation of three verses in the Song of Songs. Tractate Ketubot, folio page 111b, quotes the teaching of Rabbi Yosef Bar Hanina, a second-generation Talmud sage. The second generation is dated from approximately 250 through 290 CE. Rabbi Yosef said, quote, Why these three oaths? One, so that the Jews should not ascend to Eretz Israel as a wall, but little by little. And another one, that the Holy One, blessed be he, adjured the Jews that they should not rebel against the rule of the nations of the world. And the last one is that the Holy One, blessed be he, adjured the nations of the world that they should not subjugate the Jews excessively. So let's review. According to Rabbi Yosei's teachings, the Jewish people should A, not make Aliyah to the land of Israel in any significant numbers, B, not rebel against their foreign rulers, and those rulers, C, should not oppress the Jews too much. Rabbi Levi, a third-generation Talmud sage, built upon Rabbi Yosei's teachings and turned the three oaths into six. He added a pledge for those in the know to D, not reveal when the Messiah will come, and E, not defer the arrival of the Messiah by disclosing that the Messiah's arrival date is far in the future, and F, they should keep these secrets from the non-Jews. For Rabbi Yossi and the subsequent scholars, the aftermath of the Bar Kokhba catastrophe was as fresh and as painful even six generations later. They acknowledged that the lives of the Jewish people would be hard, and as a minority in the diaspora, they would be vulnerable to the predations of the majority wherever they lived. They understood that at some point, self-respecting Jews would either stand up for themselves, which would end in violence, or they would leave for the land of Israel and they could not allow either to happen. But this understanding was not a new one. Final thread. Mishlei said it first when he said, quote, better patience than a warrior and who governs his spirit than a conqueror of towns. What makes Mishlei's pronouncement fundamentally different is that it comes from a place of sound advice rather than from the harrowing firsthand experience of the consequences for someone being impatient and acting the warrior in conquering towns instead of governing their spirit. Mishle didn't have to stand in the ruins of a failed rebellion to understand that perhaps one is better off containing anger rather than lashing out. Mishle offers us pure, uncut wisdom. Like any parent, he doesn't want us to learn the hard way. We can heed his advice and save ourselves from paying the price for the bad outcome. 
Or we can, like most teenagers, nod and maybe smile, take in the words but not the meaning, go off and do our own thing anyway, provoking a military conflict with the Roman Empire, contrary to what was advised, only to learn firsthand that we cannot prevail and that we've reduced our homeland to a wasteland, scattered our people to the four winds, consigned them to a life of precarity and borderline hopelessness, and inflicted a trauma that even centuries later will still be a subject of conversation and social policy, all because we couldn't be patient and govern our spirit. It's not that hard to hear the words of Mishle, but sometimes it's truly challenging to listen. like we heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Tell a friend about TanakhCast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to TanakhCast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning vibe this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast at Patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 196, when we continue in the Proverbs with chapters 20 through 23.